0: Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do this same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Reflecting on this, I decided to follow her advice. And I noticed profound changes in my own dogs. Enhanced energy, healthier skin, and an overall younger demeanor. It's truly heartwarming to see them so vibrant and full of life. Go to badlandsfood.com hometown and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash hometown. There's a scene in the show Mad Men that shook me up the first time I saw it. It's probably not the one you think. In the very first episode... The Draper family picnics along the interstate. The grass is green, the birds are out, and a small portable radio plays softly on a red and white checkered blanket. It's a deeply nostalgic picture of 1960s America.
1: Is Bobby in the car again?
0: Uh, No, he's running around.
1: So I don't understand. You'd rather play checkers than my Look at the Clouds game.
0: I'd rather play with
1: Philly potty. I don't want to jam between my seats.
0: You know what, Sally? Go play with Bobby. We should do this more often. We should only do this. Betty picks up the thermos and starts to gather the kids for the car.
1: We should probably get going if we don't want to hit traffic. Sally, pack up the checkers.
0: Check their hands okay. Don takes one last swig from a small white can of Lone star beer before throwing it as far as he can into the field Betty grabs the blanket full of plastic and paper shakes it off into the grass and then they just walk away when this first aired on television I remember just sitting there in disbelief I was used to seeing explosions of all kinds of violence on screen, but this littering was jarring. It was so hideous, and yet so ordinary and casual. You realize, seeing things like this, that this is why all of your teachers made such a big deal out of Earth Day in elementary school. Something really bad happened in the 19th and 20th centuries. Up to that point, nature had been mostly immune to our appetite for destruction. It used to be difficult to litter. As in, if you tried to do it on purpose, you would be hard-pressed to succeed in hurting nature in a meaningful way. We could never destroy our planet with discarded clay jars, wooden spoons, or stone manufacturing. Even glass and gunpowder and mining were relatively clean. We could never ruin our native planet with catapults, but we can bury it six feet deep in a mountain of plastic. It's kind of like nature set on us for the first few million years, then very suddenly we got the upper hand and we did not know our strength. Once we got this upper hand, we never let up. Nature was merciless, and so were we. We shredded it with bombing campaigns and poisoned it with Agent Orange. We filled it with garbage, crushed every rock, and cut every green thing that could make us money. Nature was simply fuel for our factories, fireplaces, and the latest fashion. Remember the 19th century trend of wearing beaver skin hats nearly drove beavers to extinction. But to be fair, Even today, we're not bigger bullies than people of the pre-modern world. We're just bigger, period. Science and industry have made us more dangerous than we once realized. The problem wasn't really that people suddenly lost their love of nature. It was that we as a species suddenly gained the power to destroy it with our indifference. And toward the end of the 19th century, American cities were simply spinning out of control. According to Martin Melosi, in his book Garbage in the Cities... Appalling stories of overcrowding, like the one where 33 Serbian workers and their boss lived in a five-room house, or the common practice of keeping farm animals in basements and even slaughtering them there, were all too familiar. City dumps were open landfills, where food waste, human waste, and dead animals stewed in the sun. Streets were covered in the black mud of well-trod horse poop, and workhorses often died in the harness leaving a trail of huge, bloated bodies throughout every American city. The smell, by all accounts, was horrific. This is Melosi again. Since the life expectancy of a city horse was only about four years, due in large measure to overwork and abuse, carcasses were plentiful. New York City scavengers removed 15,000 dead horses from the streets in 1880. As late as 1916, when motor vehicles dominated the streets, Chicago scavengers still had to remove 9,202 carcasses. On top of all that, pollution. About 80% of urban waste went right into the nearest body of water. Downriver from major cities, public and private beaches looked like cesspools, and it was not uncommon for swimmers to be suddenly nudged by mattresses and old shoes. Black flakes of soot snowed down year-round from factory smokestacks, and pretty much everything you could see touch, smell, or taste, was covered in a thick film of grime. One historian summed up the situation by suggesting, Industrialism produced the most degraded urban environment the world had ever seen, for even the quarters of the ruling class were befooled and overcrowded. And this degraded urban environment helped promote the growth and preservation of the national park system, in part, just because everyone wanted to get out of them. City life had become so gross and inhospitable that it had people dreaming again of wide open spaces. Arguably, the greatest of all American open spaces is the Grand Canyon in northwestern Arizona. The same industrialization that was ruining American cities in the late 19th century covered the country with railroads and made coast to coast travel more convenient than ever before. And of course, the more people that were able to visit the Grand Canyon in person, the more its legend grew. Concerned that the crisis of industrialized pollution might soon spoil the world's largest canyon, Teddy Roosevelt said in 1903, The Grand Canyon fills me with awe. It is beyond comparison, beyond description, absolutely unparalleled throughout the wide world. Let this grand wonder of nature remain as it is now. Do nothing to mar its grandeur, sublimity, and loveliness. You cannot improve on it, but what you can do is to keep it for your children, your children's children, and all who come after you as the one great sight which every American should see. Fortunately, America listened. The Grand Canyon today remains more or less identical to the marvel that Roosevelt visited, though it did not become an official national park until 1919, 16 years later. I called up our ranger friend, Jim Burnett, to learn more.
1: Well, thanks for the chance to be here today. It's probably a rare American who hasn't seen at least pictures of the Grand Canyon, but there's sure nothing like seeing it in person. I had the chance to work there early in my career as a ranger and have been there several other times since as a visitor. So I've got a few tips and suggestions that I hope will be useful. The first one is to get information about the park in advance. If you Google the terms Plan Your Visit Grand Canyon National Park, you should find a link to the Plan Your Visit page on the park's official website. And if you go there, you'll find details about shuttle buses and where to park and which viewpoints to go to, because all those things can be a bit overwhelming if you don't have some idea what to expect before you get there.
0: I can speak to this point from firsthand experience. When you go to a place like the Grand Canyon, what you are actually visiting is a handful of very small, very specific points within an area the size of a small state. With that in mind, it can be a bit overwhelming to know where exactly to go, what to do, or even where to start.
1: The park website has a lot of excellent information that will save you valuable time if you just take advantage of that before you get to the park. And there's also a new twist, there's a new free National Park Service app that people might want to give a try. You can download it at Google Player or the Apple Store and it gives you the option, but doesn't require you to download and save information about individual parks to your phone or tablet. And that lets you access that information like the park, shuttle, bus stops, even if you don't have internet access or a cell signal. So it's not a perfect app and it's not the only information you'll need, but it can be useful at times. Now, if you've never been to the Grand Canyon before, be sure you understand there is a South Rim and a North Rim. The South Rim is the most heavily visited side of the park where most of the major developments located. And the North Rim is a great place for a less crowded visit Still has about everything you need for a convenient stay. But the two rims are 220 miles apart by road. And when I worked there, we would occasionally find somebody show up on the south rim. And they wanted a quick 10-minute trip over to the lodge on the north side. And we had to give them the bad news. So if you're planning your visit, be sure you know whether you're going to the north side or the south side. The south rim is open all year. The north rim is only open from about May 15th to October 15th because it's 1,000 feet higher in elevation. and They get a lot of winter snow. So just be sure to check the status of the road if you're going to the North Rim. So since most people go to the South Rim, that's what I'm going to talk about many for us today. And the first major thing you'll come to as you enter the park on the South Rim is the Visitor Center and the Mather Point Overlook. And tip number one is when you get there, park there. Before you leave your car, it is a really big parking lot. They've got some signs around you're in section A, B, C, or D. Be sure you know which park you're in and then head into the visitor center, pick up a map and some helpful information, and then head right out to Mather Point, just out the back door, and there's your first look at the canyon. Then when you get ready to go anywhere else in the village area on the south rim, if you've got a parking place, Leave your car there. Just hang on to it. They have a great free shuttle system that will take you any place you need to be there on the south side of the park in the main part of the village. If you give up a parking spot at 10 in the morning and come back an hour later, it probably won't be there. So if you've got a a spot located, just hang on to it. And if you look on the park website, there's all the details about the park shuttle system, a map, and tell you how to navigate the area. The second tip is the time of day really makes a surprising difference in how the canyon looks and especially how it will be captured if you try to take photos or videos. Make no mistake, the canyon is amazing any time you see it. But when the sun is really high in the sky, especially if it's a clear day, all that bare rock can really start to look kind of harsh, and the colors just won't be as vivid. So if possible, if you can spend a night there, right there in the park or close by, so you can get up and enjoy the canyon early in the morning, late in the evening, I think you'll really have a much more enjoyable visit, and it will really look much more dramatic to you. When the sun's lower in the sky and there's shadows on the rock formations, I think you find the canyons even a lot more beautiful than at midday. And if you get there and it starts to cloud up, you've got clouds in the sky, then don't let that give you concern. In a lot of ways, the canyon is really even more beautiful when you have clouds because you get these neat shadow effects on the rock. And if you are there for sunset and the sun's coming down behind the clouds, you can really get some dramatic sunsets. I'm not a an expert photographer, but I do enjoy that as a hobby. So I do have a couple of suggestions about that, particularly if you want to go for a sunset shot and you're going out to one of the overlooks, give yourself some time to get there because everybody else wants to go to the overlook for sunset as well. So there's nine overlooks along the popular seven mile drive called the Hermit Road, used to be called the West Rim Drive. And from early March until late November, the only way you can get there is by riding the shuttle bus. And that's probably a good thing because otherwise the traffic jam is with you beach. It's absolutely gridlocked out there. So the shuttle bus is great, but allow some time to get on the bus and get to where you want to go. And there are some additional overlooks right near the village that you can drive to or walk to. So you don't have to get out and fight the bus if you don't want. Sunsets, a lot of people say, well, I want to get out. I want to shoot right at the sun. And again, if you have some clouds, that's great. But really what you're trying to get is a sunset at the Grand Canyon. And if you're shooting at the sun, right at sunset, by then the canyon is starting to get pretty dark. And so it was pretty washed out. So I found I had the best shots if I would shoot with the sun in my back or the sun to my side before the sun got too low in the sky. And then you have all those bright colors in the canyon instead of trying to rub up where the sun is itself. There's a really great site on the park website. If you Google the term Photography 101 Capturing Grand Canyon, there are some wonderful tips from a pro that really help you in terms of your photography projects
0: there. I asked Jim if he had any favorite stories from his time as a ranger in the Grand Canyon.
1: Yeah, I do have a lot. But one of my favorites, since we've been talking about uh, photography, is a situation told to me by a fellow ranger there at the canyon. Family pulled into a, a parking spot at the Mouth their Overlook, which is now behind the new visitor center. Back in those days, you could drive right up practically to the edge of the canyon and you get it right there at the overlook. And so the in this situation, the, the family station wagon pulled in, and you can tell this is a somewhat older story with the station wagon instead of the minivan. The doors flew open and the wife and the three kids jumped out and they all rushed over to the safety rail at the edge of the canyon. And they were impressed and they were excited and pointing and ooing and And meanwhile, dad was busy with his cameras. This was before the days of digitals and videos. So he had an eight millimeter movie camera and a 35 millimeter steel camera. And he walked over the edge of the overlook and he grabbed the movie camera and he panned left and panned right, apparently exhausted his his roll of film and the movie camera. So he dropped that, pulled up his 35 millimeter and fired off a quick roll of film left to right, put the camera down and said, okay, everybody back to the car. And one of the kids turned around and said, dad, we just got here. And dad said, I've got it all on film. You can see it when we get home. We got three more parks to get to today. So it was both humorous and a little sad. Everybody has their own agenda, what they're doing when they're on vacation. But hopefully, that's a little extreme, and most people have, a, have the opportunity to see more of the park than just on film when they get home.
0: I asked if he thought access to digital imagery had affected this impulse to come to places like the Grand Canyon for these kind of abrupt photo opportunities.
1: I suspect to some sense it has because it's so much easier now, the digital, and that, to get your photos and have some confidence that you got. Now you can get some quick feedback and know you can see it all when you get home. Back in the old days, when I was starting out, you had to pop that roll of film into the Kodak mailer and send it off. You didn't get any feedback for a week. So yeah, I think perhaps digital maybe does affect that to some extent. Everybody has, again, their own, take some people, this is going to be their only trip out West in a lifetime, and they want to squeeze in as much as they can. But hopefully they can find some balance in there and have the chance to enjoy a little bit of the area where there are another illustration of that. I sometimes worked at the information desk there in the visitor center, and people would come in occasionally and say, I just got here, I've only got an hour. What can I see in an hour's time at the Grand Canyon? And we were always polite and tried to give them some good suggestions. But that question came up one day and I just finished a conversation with a guy who was a regular visitor to the park and had been there a lot, and he had stepped off to one side while I to talked to the next visitor. And I had that what can I do in an hour question. I heard him mumble under his breath. if you just got an hour, just go buy some postcards and get in the car and going home. That was kind of his take on it. Some people, that's all the hours, all they got. And in fact, almost all the big park websites will have some tips. Here's what you can do if you have an hour, if you have half a day, if you have a full day, if you have two days. So look at some of those things and that can help you manage your time, especially if that's important to you and make the most of your visit. But I, I hope that People that have taken the time and expense to get to a place like the Grand Canyon, if they can spend some time, especially if you have the chance to spend a night, I think you'll find a whole different dimension. If you can get out, you can take a few of the easy walks and just see the canyon at different times of day. It'll be a whole different experience for you.
0: Most people visit the South Rim as opposed to the North, but I wanted to know the difference between the sides and whether it was worth making the long trip around to see the canyon from both sides.
1: It's a great question. It's a four to five hour drive to drive around from one side to the other. And the canyon is really impressive from both sides. The north rim is a much slower paced kind of experience because there's not nearly so much development. But I think if I had only the two days, I would choose one rim or the other and spend the time there and go look at it from different viewpoints, get out and take some short walks, some intermediate walks. And really enjoy it more in depth rather than spend a big chunk of your time driving from one to the other. It doesn't look dramatically different from one side or the other. So I think I would pick one and focus on it. That would be my suggestion.
0: I asked for any other tips he might have for saving visitors time and trouble. The south rim is
1: at 7,000 feet and the north rim over 8,000 feet. So unless you live at a high elevation, if you jump into something a little too vigorously in terms of hike, you're going to be wondering who stole all the oxygen out of the air just have to pace yourself a little bit to get used to the altitude. It's also a lot drier than the people expect. There's trees close to the canyon on the South Rim and North Rim, but you might remember as you drove in, you were basically driving through a desert. And so the air is dry. So you really have to be careful to stay stay hydrated or the combination of the altitude and the humidity can catch up with you. And if you wonder why you're not feeling well, it's probably because you're going too fast or because you need to catch up on your hydration. And there are some great Walks, there's a trail called Rim Trail that runs for thirteen miles along the canyon rim. But you can take it in short segments, half mile or a mile at a time. There are spots you can get on or off, several places you can take a short half a mile and then get on the shuttle bus and go back to where you left your car, that kind of thing. So I would suggest people try to again find something that fits their particular situation. One thing the park really cautions people about, it, and I saw a lot of folks get into difficulty, people Decide they want to hike to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And if you're in really good physical shape and you're prepared for that and you're acclimated and ready to go, then that's fine. The main thing is to please don't try to hike to the bottom of the canyon, go to the river and come back up the same day. The park has some really uh, vigorous language trying to discourage people from that on the website. People would ask me sometimes, well, how far is it down the bottom? I said, and it's basically seven miles through the shortest trail, and I kind of size them up. And if it looks like they could take a little humor, I say, "Well, it's seven miles down, but it's seventy-seven miles back." And it would feel that way a lot of times. And uh, people get themselves into trouble, especially in the summertime. It's they had a heat warning today at the Grand Canyon. It was 107 degrees at the bottom, even though it feels great at 7,000 feet up top. It is really hot down at the bottom. And it looks like they may break a record this year their current pace for the number of rescues in the canyon. They average about 250 a year, and they're way ahead of that. And the majority of those are people who start off thinking they could get to the bottom and they can't get back out. And so there's one advice, pace yourself and figure out what you're ready to do so that you can have an enjoyable visit and don't, don't do over things in terms of trying to hike to the bottom you're not ready for it. Good rule of thumb on any hike, especially one there at the canyon, is allow twice the amount of time to come back as you have going down. So if you've got four hours for a hike, don't hike down two hours and figure it's going to take you two hours to get back to the top because you need to allow more time to get out.
0: And if you're not in good enough shape for a full hike?
1: There's great hikes along the rim. And if you wanted to get down and feel like you just want to experience some of the feel of being down in the canyon, I would sometimes tell folks just get on the trail and walk 15, 20, 30 minutes until you feel comfortable and then just turn around and come back at an easy pace. Once you get below the rim, even just... The short way, it is a totally different perspective, and that's certainly a good approach rather than try to do a marathon thing. Typically, somewhat to my surprise, the the typical profile of someone who has to be rescued because he can't make it out of the canyon is a male between 18 and 30 years of age. And we guys get that macho thing. Oh, yeah, I'm in good shape. I can do that. But there's a lot more to it than, than you'd think in the canyon. So see what you're really capable of and do
0: something you'd enjoy instead of
1: just trying to check
0: off the box on your experience list. The best times to visit, I learned, are in May and September. Yes, and if you come, it's getting
1: to the point that it's hard to find a time when it's not busy at the Grand Canyon. But certainly uh, during the summertime, if people can avoid, if their schedule allows them to avoid going during the summer, things will be less crowded and it be a lot more fun. May and September are great times to go if that's an option for you. Still busy, but not as quite as jammed in the summer. But if you're there during the summer, the park suggests you try to arrive either before 9, 30 in the morning Or four in the afternoon, because if you get there during those peak hours, there's times you could have a wait at the south entrance anywhere between 45 minutes and two hours just to get into the park. So there are some alternatives to that just outside the park. The south entrance, which is the come through Flagstaff, Arizona, which is the main gateway community and drive up to the park. You come in the south entrance and there's a small community called Tuzian. T-U-S-A-Y-A-N, Tusian, right outside the park. And there are a number of places in town you can park for free in Tusian. And then there's a free shuttle bus from late May to early September that you can get on right into the park. The buses have a priority lane to get right on through. So you miss that big wait. So there's one option. If you want to drive into the park, another thing that will save you some time, you've got to have an entrance pass, either an annual pass that's good for all the parks, or you can buy a park specific pass for Grand Canyon. If you have that in hand when you get to the gate, there is also a priority lane at the entrance if you already have your pass. You can buy those at vending machines there in Tucson, or you can buy them online before you go to the park. That'll save you some time. Another option is there is another way into the South Rim. It's called the East Entrance. If you're starting out in Flagstaff, if you drive north on US 89 up to the town of Cameron, Arizona, and then turn left or west on State Highway 64, that brings you into what's called the desert view entrance to the park, the east entrance. Now, if you go that way, it adds about 25 miles to your drive and about 30 minutes to your drive. But for an extra 30 minutes saves you a 45 minutes to a two-hour delay at the south rim, I'd say that's a pretty good trade-off. And you have some extra viewpoints you can look at along the east rim drive. So that's certainly another option that you can do. And if, if you can get a an internet signal, there are some there is a webcam on the park website that shows you what the traffic looks like at the south gate. So I might give you a size up if you're in Flagstaff and say, well, we've got 90 minutes before we get to the gate. What's it going to be then? Give some serious thought to using the alternative and coming in from the east side. And another option, there is a private railroad called the Grand Canyon Railway that operates from the town of Williams, which is a little ways west of Flagstaff, where you can Take a great steam train excursion up to the park, get off. You have about three hours there midday, and then they take you back to Williams unless you've arranged to get off and spend the night there. That's at least another option that people might enjoy it. The big downside is I'll see to that unless you have an overnight reservation is that you have a pretty narrow window at the spend time in the park right there at the middle part of the day. But no matter when you go, the main thing is if you have a chance to go to the Grand Canyon, certainly take advantage of it. If you can only be there for an hour, by all means, go and take advantage of it. If you can stay longer, then
0: I think it sure be worth your while. We weren't able to spend the night on our recent visit, so I wanted to know where we should stay on our next trip to the Grand Canyon.
1: There are some lodges and More motel type establishments located in the park itself and the town of Tusiana right outside has got a number of places. If you can snag a reservation and if you, if your budget will stand in, if you can be one of the lucky ones, the classic place to stay in the park is called the El Tavar Hotel. Sits right on the rim of the canyon. It's built in 1905. It's the oldest operating hotel still there in the park and it's a national historic landmark. It's a, if you try to visualize what a stereotyped National Park Lodge to look like, that would be the Elton Bar Hotel. And if you can get a room there, that's certainly a fantastic experience. And another way to at least kind of experience that ambiance a little bit, even if you're not staying there, they've got a dining room, a few window tables actually have a view of the canyon right from your table to the dining room. Of course, those are hard to get to, but just get in there for a lunch or a breakfast at the Elton Bar get in and walk around the lobby. If you don't have a, a meal there, just get in kind of water, look at that wonderful architecture from over 100 years ago. Just something that you don't see in a lot of places in the country anymore. And it just gives you maybe a sense of life back in a slower time when people got on the train and came from New York and spent a week at the Grand Canyon. You can maybe get a little of that flavor if you just get in and wander through the altar bar, even just for a few minutes.
0: I've since looked up pictures of this lodge, and we're definitely stopping here the next time through, and for more than just a few minutes. I'd like to thank Jim Burnett for joining us again and for all his insight on the Grand Canyon. I'll leave you with a few quick facts. The Grand Canyon National Park is not only one of the largest holdings in the national park system, it is 50% bigger than the state of Rhode Island, measuring 1,904 square miles. There are roughly 1,000 different caves hidden within the canyon, though only 335 have ever been mapped or recorded. But if you would like to explore these caves legally, Only one of them is currently open to the public, the Cave of the Domes on the eastern side of the canyon, in Horseshoe Mesa. You might think of the Grand Canyon purely as a tourist destination, but there is a Native American tribe who lives inside of it. The Havasupai Indian Reservation, home to the Havasupai people, has a population of 208 and is the most remote human settlement in the lower 48. In fact, it's so off the grid that the mail has to be delivered by mule. Lastly, the canyon is frequently included on lists of the so-called Seven Wonders of the Natural World. Harleyistic, however, with her one-star review, was not impressed. Quote, Honestly, I don't get it. It's just a big hole in the ground. I mean, it does have a beautiful view, but people are overhyping about a big hole in the ground. Hours and hours of just walking around this hole... Sorry to sound so harsh. Self-certified local guide, Fire Fist, was similarly disappointed. I'd been to the Grand Canyon once before when I was a kid. I took an opportunity to go there again, as an adult. When I got there, the whole canyon was covered in clouds and mist, so you couldn't see anything. I brought my dog, who barked at everyone. The people at the canyon were rude, as all the people in the state of Arizona are. I found I couldn't take my dog anywhere, and it didn't matter because I couldn't see anything and from Whitney Scott, I visited the Bland Canyon in June of 2018. I was very excited to take my inner tube down the Cottonwood River. It was awful. It was super rocky. I cut my foot on a rock, and my inner tube popped. The water was moving a little too fast for my liking. It was really cold. After my tube popped, I had an incredibly difficult time getting out of the canyon. I couldn't find a ladder anywhere. Sad face. We'll never return. Among the One Stars review you will find for the Grand Canyon online, is this weird trend of people claiming to have lost their pants on their visit, as in when they go to the Grand Canyon, their pants fall down or disappear. I don't get it either, but this is from Cheeto Puff. It was a very fun trip, except when me and my husband went up to get a closer view, we were knocked down on the ground. When we stood up, our pants were gone. Please fix this on the next patch. Thanks. DJ the DJ Croc claimed to have seen more of his grandparents than he bargained for. I was visiting with my grandparents and my brothers. We were having a great time, or a horse woggle, as New York grandma would say. We walked up to the edge of the cliff. I looked down and felt a weird sensation. I looked back up, and my family were in their skivvies. My grandma had my pink underwear on. Would come again. And so on. There are hundreds and hundreds of these vanishing underwear reviews that are clearly not actual critics of the park, but rather just some kind of viral, nonsensical joke. If anyone out there listening knows the funny part, reach out and let me know. In the meantime, in the next episode, we'll be visiting Death Valley.